Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, please go ahead and turn to James chapter 5. Our text for the morning will be James chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you that two of our pastors are across the pond in London right now, uh, Pastor Andrew and Pastor Dave. Uh, they're both at a church uh, receiving training, learning how uh, other churches do what they do. Um, so during this week, please pray for them, pray that it would be a profitable time for them, that they would be equipped, that they would learn how better to equip us for the work of the ministry. So. Uh, if you think about them, please pray for them during this week that uh, the Lord would bless that time and, and that they'd be brought back to us safely. I wanted to start this morning off by presenting with you a bit of a scenario. Imagine with me, you have the unique opportunity to send yourself, your younger self, a note. You can send a note into the past um, to your younger self. Now, I know that there are varying ages here, so interpret your younger self to be whatever you'd like that to be. So, but here's the catch. This, this note that you could send to yourself is not a huge piece of paper. You get maybe a three by five note card, uh, but you get to say absolutely anything to your younger self. Now, it's safe to assume whatever you'd say is, is extremely important. It would be something that would benefit you if you had known that when you were younger. Maybe you would tell your younger self, hey, make sure you drink a lot of water, exercise, and, and eat well, because when you get to my age now, you're going to be happy that you're not in excruciating pain or you, you don't throw your back out when you sneeze or something. Take care of your body now so it'll take care of you in the future. Maybe your thought went to... Well, listen, uh, in 2008, some bad things are going to happen, but don't worry, buy a whole bunch of houses right after that because things are going to be so much better in about 10 years after that. Or maybe you thought, hey, when you hear this company called Apple or Amazon or Microsoft, buy as much stock as you possibly can. But as you're thinking about that, I wonder what, what sort of spiritual advice would you give your younger self? What would you say? Now, you need to remember that anything you, you would tell your younger self would be extremely important to you now. Okay. So, as you've thought about that, I'd ask you this question. Where would prayer rank on your list? Or where would prayer fit into this little three-by-five piece of paper that you'd send your younger self? Now, I don't ask that question to spring a trap on you or make you feel bad if prayer wasn't on your note there. But what I, what I do mean to highlight is that for, for most of us, prayer is a struggle. It's, it's really hard to do. It's not something that all of us tend to naturally gravitate to. And, and more often than not, the importance of prayer is overlooked. J.I. Packer, in talking about prayer, says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man or a woman, spiritually, in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Prayer is crucial. 
And James picks up the, the importance of prayer here in our text in James chapter 5, and he, he drives the point home for us. He describes various situations that Christians find themselves in, and he commands them to pray in any situation that they are. What James does in our passage is elevates the importance of prayer not only to his original audience, but for us as well. Now, it's our practice at our church to work verse by verse through books of the Bible. And that's beneficial because it, it keeps the big idea of various books in, in view. It, it helps us to see how this passage fits into the larger part of the book. So there's a danger when we jump into a, a passage, especially at the end of a book, that we might misunderstand what James is saying. So we need to kind of get you caught up to speed. You need to understand really what James is trying to do as we jump into the end of the book. You see, James has written a very pastoral letter. It's full of wisdom, but very pastoral. And he's written to Jewish Christians that have been scattered. These Jewish Christians have been persecuted. They've been kicked out of their, their homeland. And now that they're in this new location, the, perse- the persecution hasn't stopped. Uh, they're still experiencing mistreatment by wealthy landowners. There's temptation to mistreat others. There's internal strife. There's really a temptation for the, the, the world's thinking to seep into the church. And in response to this situation, James writes his letter to the dispersed Jewish Christians. And I think the point of James is helping them see what a genuine faith is. James is writing to show them, listen, this is what a real or undivided faith looks like. And he walks through various situations that they may find himself in. And when we get to James chapter 5, specifically 13 and following, James's point here is to focus on prayer. And the point of our passage this morning is that genuine faith is seen through a life characterized by prayer. That's James's big point. So, I trust you're there by now, James chapter 5. Follow along with me as I read. We'll read verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So as we walk through our passage this morning, we're going to separate it. We're going to divide it into three sections. The outline for this morning is three areas of life that prayer is central. Three areas of life that prayer is central. And the first area of life is suffering. We see this in verse 13, suffering. What James will do in our passage is he'll ask this question, And then he'll give an answer to this question, and in that answer lies the command. So, this first area of life, James asks this question, is anyone among you suffering? Now, suffering here, this word has already been used in the previous context of uh, verse 10, 
And really, the idea is to refer to a general sense of suffering, general trials. James is saying, is anyone among you in a very difficult spot? Is anyone among you experiencing difficulty or trial or heartache in any way at all? James answers this question, and here's the command, let him pray. But what is prayer? Have you ever stopped and thought about what prayer was? If someone who has no framework of of anything religious came to you and asked you, what is prayer? How would you define it? I've really been helped by Joe Beakey. He describes prayer as, um, he says, prayerful praying clings with one hand to heaven's footstool and with the other hand clings to Calvary's cross, as it were, and stirs itself up to take hold of God calling on Him to come through on His promises. That might be a little bit longer than your definition, but I love the word picture here. Praying is essentially taking hold of God, the footstool of heaven. But the only reason that I can do that is because of the cross. So I hold on to the cross and I go to God asking Him to come through on His promises. And so that's what James says. If you are in a difficult situation this morning right now, Well, your call, the command here is to pray. But but what do we pray for? Surely it's not wrong to pray to God that God would remove the trial that you're in, that God would alleviate some pain and some pressure. That's not wrong to pray for. We'll see that in just a few verses down the road. But listen, if that's the extent of our prayers we may be cultivating sort of a short-sighted view of Christianity and definitely of of sanctification. Our our requests must, uh, our prayers must involve a request for God to help us, to help us grow on top of removing the trials. Turn back just a few pages or right across the page to James chapter 1. I think James helps us understand what we should pray for in the very beginning of his epistle. Look at verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is telling us there is a purpose. There is a reason why things are difficult for you right now. But he goes on. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks the wisdom to see that the trials that God has allowed in your life are for your good. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So what do we pray for? Yes, pray, Lord, heal this individual. Lord, remove this trial. Lord, help me get through this. But also, Lord, I know that you're sovereign. Lord, I know that you're good. God, would you please help me to see how even this difficult thing that you've allowed to come into my life is for my good. So, I want you to stop and ask yourself, how do you respond to trials? How do you respond to the pain of things falling apart around you? Maybe the pain of a wayward child, the pain of a maybe loss in in employment, the loss of a loved one, 
the loss of the ability to do something that you once were able to do and now not anymore, the, the pain of unmet expectations in whatever situation you find yourself? How do you respond to those trials? See, maybe you're like me, and maybe in the midst of those trials, what you do is absolutely everything you possibly can do to alleviate any pressure. I, I've got to fix this thing. So you work and you work and you work, and when nothing happens, well, man, I, I should probably pray about this, sort of like it's a last resort. But then others of you, you struggle to pray because you wonder, if God is so loving and God is so good, how can he allow this to happen to me? This doesn't, this doesn't seem right. And so what you do is you spend much time in this weird in-between where you haven't really prayed to God, but you've thought about Him and all of the reasons why something's not lining up. Maybe, maybe He just doesn't love me. But I'd encourage you, I'd encourage all of you here this morning, fight against that temptation either way. If you have that temptation to, to really wallow in, in self-despair or in grief, I'd, I'd encourage you to fight against that. But then if your temptation is, well, let me work and do everything I possibly can, and then as a last resort, I'll pray, I'd encourage you to fight against that as well. Because the very fact that you and I have the privilege to pray is evidence that God is good. It's evidence that He would reconcile a rebellious people to a holy God by the death of His Son, and that's the basis for our prayer. Remember, holding on to the cross. So if that's true... If God has already given His Son and allowed us the means to approach the throne of grace with boldness, Hebrews says, well, surely I can trust in God's goodness. So, James asks, are you, are you suffering this morning? Well, go to God in prayer. But we come to another scenario in verse 13. James asks another question. Is anyone cheerful? This is the second area of life where, where prayer is central. Cheerful Christians rejoice. So he asks this question, is anyone cheerful? Some of your translations may say happy. And I, I, I think this word isn't speaking to a situation one finds himself in or necessarily an emotional response to a certain uh, uh, situation. This word is used interestingly in Acts chapter 27 verse 22 uh, and there, Paul is on a ship with a bunch of people, and this ship is in a, a storm. And everybody thinks they're all going to die. But Paul tries to comfort these people, and this is what he says. I urge you, take heart. And that's our word. Take heart. Be comforted. Have confidence that everything will be all right, because there will be no loss of life among you. So Paul tells those people, be comforted. Take courage, take heart. It's going to be okay. So what James is saying, are you in a situation where you are cheerful or you're comforted? Are things going well for you? Are you just at ease? Well, what's, what's the response? James tells us, let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. Give an outward expression of praise to God. This word is very closely connected to the idea of prayer. It's where we get uh, the word, our word psalms from, from the Septuagint there. And simply this word just extols believers, uh, urges believers to praise God, to extol Him. So what is James saying? If things are going really well for you, hey, praise the Lord. But really, 
Praise the Lord. Turn to Him in prayer and praise Him. Now, as I was preparing this message, I thought, I I wonder why James says that here. I wonder why this is included. Why does James remind believers to pray when things are going well? Well, I think it's because we know that the good gifts God gives sometimes make us complacent. We tend to forget God when things are going well, much like the Israelites in in the book of Judges. And so, Maybe I'm projecting on you. Maybe that's just me. But, but think back on your life. I want you to think about when are you most likely to pray? If you're, if you're anything like me, when things are going really bad, I tend to pray a lot. But when things are going really well, I, I tend to forget. I, I tend to enjoy the gift rather than extol the giver of that good gift. I think Ron Hamilton, he's a, he's a songwriter, he's, he's written some good things. Uh, I think he, he really does kind of summarize what James is saying here. This is what Ron Hamilton says, this poem. Sometimes when life seems gentle and blessings flood my way, I turn my gaze away from you and soon forget to pray. But when the sky grows darker and courage turns to fear, My anxious voice cries upward with words you long to hear, Lord, I need you. When the sea of life is calm, and Lord, I need you. When the wind is blowing strong, whether trials come or cease, keep me always on my knees, Lord, I need you. So are things going well? Well, go to the Lord and praise Him. Pray when life is difficult, and pray when things are going really well pray in every season of life. So now we come to the last scenario here that James highlights for us, that prayer should be central. You're going to see the same pattern. There's going to be a question and then a lot of information given. There's going to be much more information about this last scenario than the first two. Now, I will, I will admit, much has been written about this section here. Good men, very wise and godly and much smarter than me, uh, have come to this passage, and there's a number of different interpretations here. Now, I'm going to walk you through what I believe James is saying to his audience and to us here this morning, and it's it's easy to get caught up on on the details, the, the technical aspects of any given passage, especially if there's debate. We tend to latch onto those things, and that's good. We, we must be convinced of what God is telling us, and we, we need to know why. But listen, James's main point in this passage is to focus on prayer, and his main exhortation for us is to pray in every season of life. So, let's not forget that big idea, and we'll come back to that at the end. So, let's jump in. This last area of life where prayer is central, and I'm saying affliction, Afflicted Christians pray in community, and we'll see this in verses 14 through 18. So this, this first question, is anyone among you sick? Now, I take this sickness here to be a physical sickness. I'll explain to you why in a moment. But first off, we see that this person, from my reading of the text, this person is unable to go to the spiritual leadership of the church. This person cannot go to their elders, so the command that James gives is for this person to call the elders and come to that person. Interestingly, this word for sick, 
in the Pauline epistles, it's usually referring to a spiritual sickness. That's true. However, James is written much earlier than a lot of the Pauline letters, so I think James would be more influenced by the Gospels and Jesus' own teaching than Paul. And every time this word is used in the Gospels without any qualifiers, it's always referring to a physical sickness here. So James asks this question, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone physically ill, unable to get up out of your bed? Well, what's the command? Let that person call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the command here is for the sick person to call the elders of the church. That's one command. And the second command is given to the elders to pray over that individual and to anoint that sick person with oil. Now, it's, it's, you need to understand here, the thrust, the main command is to pray. And this anointing with oil, I'll explain that in a moment, that is not central, that's supplemental. That's something that's in addition to the praying. It doesn't carry the same weight as a command to pray. And this anointing with oil, even though it's supplemental, what is it? And this is a problem because there's not much evidence from the New Testament as to what this anointing is. We only see it in one place, Mark 6, 13. And the context there is Jesus' disciples, they are out and they are healing people. And this is what that verse says. And they, that is the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this anointing with oil, it's generally taken in one of two ways. First, it's either medicinal. The oil that the elders are to administer, it actually does play a, plays a role in the healing process. I don't think that that's the best way to see this. Uh, why would the elders be called to administer this ointment if anybody could? If the ointment is some sort of medicinal thing, it makes more sense for someone else to do it. The elders don't need to do it. But the other way to take this is a religious or a symbolic way. And I think that's what James is pointing at. Oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, anointing was done as a means to separate someone else for special attention to God. And I think that's what James is saying here. It may be that this is just uh, setting someone apart for special attention. We know that it's not the oil that heals. James is going to say that the Lord will heal that person in response to a prayer. Uh, Many healings happen apart from any kind of anointing with oil in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And then we don't see this prescribed anywhere else, anywhere else. There's, There's not this prescription. So for those reasons, I think what James is saying is this person is to call the elders, they are to pray over him and symbolically or and anoint them with oil, symbolically setting them apart for special attention and care to God. But James gives us much more information than he does regarding the first two scenarios. Uh, he gives us a result in verse 15. He tells us that there are things that we can expect to happen. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So he says this prayer of faith will heal the person. What is this prayer of faith that he's talking about? Well, I think we've already seen this in chapter 1, where uh, the, the audience is commanded to pray without doubting, without doubting that the Lord hears and answers our pray, prayers. I think uh, confidence that the Lord hears and answers, that's what the prayer of faith hit is. 
And then what happens in response to this prayer of faith? This person will be saved and they will be raised up. Okay. So these words, being saved and being raised up, there's, it's kind of a mixed bag. So these words often refer to a spiritual saving and a spiritual rising up, but these words also in the Bible refer to a physical saving and a physical rising up. And if you can't already tell, this is where the crux of of the, the disagreement is. I think this is where really the weight of the disagreement lies. But I believe, based on the context, that this is focused on a physical sickness. This person is so sick that they can't go to the elders. The elders are called to them. Um, And the elders are going to pray over that person. And so it seems to be that it should be a physical healing. That, Based on the context and everything, I think that's what James is saying. So I take it to be a physical healing promised in verse 15. Not only does the context support uh, physical healing, but James goes on to say that the person's going to be raised up. And it makes most sense if, there's, if physically they couldn't get up, the Lord will physically raise them up from their previous state. But not only is there going to be healing in verse 15, if there has been any sins committed, there's going to be forgiveness. And James is very intentional here. He uses a word And he uses a construct in the original languages that really does show this is a condition. It's not always the case that sin produces uh, sickness, but sometimes it does. Sin is not always an automatic precursor to sickness. We see this in John chapter 9. This is the passage that Brian is preaching uh, at Mayer, so please pray for him. Uh, But James chapter 9 I'm sorry, John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are passing by and they see a blind man, a person blind from birth. And his disciples stop in verse 2 and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, because he's, he's born blind? And what they're doing is they're betraying a fundamental misunderstanding, much like Job's friends, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So they take this understanding and they say, Lord, who, where's, where's the sin in this situation? Because I know there must be some sin somewhere. And Jesus answers, no, it's not that this man, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed on him. The idea here is there is no sin here. God has sovereignly allowed this man to be born blind for this moment so that God's glory would be displayed on him. So there is no sin. Sin is not an automatic precursor to sickness, but it can be. It can be. Paul, in talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's giving instructions on the Lord's table, but he warns them to not partake of the table in an unworthy manner. If they have known sin in their lives, he says, do not partake of the Lord's table. Listen to verses 27 and 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So sin doesn't always produce sickness. Sometimes it does. 
So let's pause here. I want, to, I want to recap. I want to make sure that you are understanding what I'm communicating, what I think James is communicating about our text. James is saying, there's a situation. If someone is deathly ill, they are to call the elders of the church. And those elders should pray over that person. And while they're praying, they should anoint them with oil. And that person will be healed. And that person will be raised up. I think that's what James is saying. But I think we can all see the glaring problem in this text because we've either known someone or had someone in our family who was sick and we were praying over that person and elders prayed over that person and healing never came. And this can be a particular problem for us because James says that the prayer of faith will bring about healing, doesn't it? So, we can either think, that's not what the text says, or that's a lie, or we can think, well, geez, I, the problem must be with me then, right? Because James says that if I just have enough faith, that person will be healed. So, so maybe the problem is with me. Maybe I just don't have enough faith. I don't, I don't think either of those are true. Because God is not a genie that, that will automatically do what we want Him to do if we'll just pray long enough and hard enough for the right amount of times. So instead of seeing James 5 as a promise, I think getting us to a correct understanding of James, we need to understand really what our faith is in, okay? We need to evaluate our faith. Because oftentimes we think faith really means having a positive mental attitude, if, if I can just say it enough times or think about it long enough or believe it hard enough, well, then anything's going to happen. I'll, I'll speak it into existence. Now, we might, not, we might not explicitly say that, but how we operate betrays that. We, we kind of think that that's what faith is. Just think positively. Good things will happen. Just have faith, brother. Have faith, sister. It'll all work out. But I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's what faith is. So turn with me just a few pages to the left in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Here, this is a very well-known chapter in the Bible. This is what we call the, the great hall of faith, the chapter of faith. All throughout chapter 11 in Hebrews, the author is giving us illustrations over and over and over about all of the good things that have happened because of faith. So, pick up in verse 29 of chapter 11. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they, were, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. So far we'd think, well, yeah, I mean, faith, 
Faith must mean that good things happen, right? If I just have enough faith, good things will happen. Okay, well, look how the author ends chapter 11. Some were tortured. Now, follow the argument here in in Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter is focusing on faith. So, the implication is that these people also had faith. So, we could say, and some by faith were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might raise again to a better life. Others, we can supply by faith, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So, how in the world can those things happen if they had faith too? I think the problem is that sometimes we think faith is this switch that we turn on and off, right? If there's something I want really bad enough, then I'll come over to the faith switch and I'll flip it on and I'll pray with faith because that's what faith means, that good things will happen. But I think we we need to correct our misunderstanding of faith. Having faith does not always mean things will go well for you. And once we correct this faith, I think we need to rest on God's sovereign plan that is at times to heal. Our faith must not be solely on the outcome of any situation, but instead, our faith should be in a God who is good, who always does good, and we can rest in His sovereign plan for our lives. I've been helped in 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 this passage, James 5, very difficult passage, I've been helped by a New Testament scholar named Doug Moo. This is what he writes about this passage, and I thought it was really helpful for me, so I wanted to read it for you. He says, a more helpful observation is to note James's specific reminder that the prayer must be a prayer of faith. This faith, while certainly including the notion of confidence in God's ability to answer, also involves absolute confidence in the perfection of God's will. A true prayer of faith then always includes within it an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in all matters. It's God's will that must be done. And it's clear that it is by no means always God's will to heal those who are sick. And therefore, the faith that is an indispensable condition for our prayers for healing to be answered can be truly present only when it is God's will to heal. What is he saying there? Well, I think our faith must be in God. Our faith must be in God, and it must rest in the fact that God is good, and He is sovereign, and He does what pleases Him, what glorifies Him, and what is for our good, even in times when it doesn't feel like that. So, brothers and sisters, I think this is an encouragement for us. This is an encouragement that, that a God who is sovereign calls us to pray on behalf of others because God responds to those prayers. But James goes on, and if everything that he has said about prayer is true, and I think it is, then what should we do? Well, verse 16, he says, therefore, in light of what I've just said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The implication here is that we ought to be people who confess sin. Confess sin. First, confess it to God. And I need to make a point here because sometimes I think we can go off and think something bad is happening in my life, so there must be some sort of sin somewhere, and I need to find it. And we imagine God on His throne just waiting, just kind of looking at us frantically, searching for something in our life, and just kind of the hot and cold method. We, we think that's what God does. And that's not what James is saying. He says, if there is known sin in your life, well, confess it. Confess it to God first and foremost. But James also broadens this out, and he includes confession to others. If there is confession to someone else, or if there is sin against someone else, we ought to be people who confess that to our brothers and sisters. But you know how hard that is, right? I mean, You know that it's really hard because we work to protect this sort of self-image. We want to be people who others depend on. We don't don't want to be people that need the help, or we don't want to be the messy people. We don't want to be the people who don't have it all together. And and we fear that they're going to see me for who I really am. But listen, I, I think that the gospel frees us from living that sort of life. Because the gospel says you and I are worse than you could ever imagine. That's, that's, a rea- that's a fact. But on the same hand, you and I are more accepted than we could ever imagine. And in fact, because of Christ's atoning death, there isn't any condemnation. There is no court that anybody can drag you into and condemn you because Christ says, I've taken that. There, there is no condemnation. And so, we can freely confess our sins. I think the gospel frees us to do that. Why? Because, well, I'm already perfect in Christ. I don't have to work, I don't have a, to work for a perfection that's already been won for me. So, confess your sins to God and confess your sins to one another. And James says in verse 16, Uh, pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, when there are God's people who are suffering or sick, we should pray for them. We should intercede for them and ask God to remove those trials. That's not the extent of our prayers. We already talked about that, but we should be praying for healing. And he ends verse 16 with this idea, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James is saying literally the persistent prayer of a righteous person has great power. Our fervent prayers of those who stand complete in Christ, those are powerful. I mean, but, but do you feel adequate for that task? Because I, I don't. I mean, do you feel like you can pray this prayer in faith all the time? Because I don't always feel like that. Our goal is to pray like this, but, but the problem is that we know ourselves, We know all of the ways that we fail. We know all of the sin struggles in our life. And then we tend to doubt that this passage could be applied to us. We tend to doubt that this, James is talking to me here. We tend to doubt that. We think this is probably for the really godly people among us, the people who have it all together, but it's not for me. But but I think what James is saying here is that you don't need to be perfect to pray like this. You don't need to be. And James, as a very good pastor, knows that this objection would probably come, and he offers 
this answer before someone can raise this objection. He gives us an example of prayer in verses 17 and 18. We see this Elijah. We read a little bit about that this morning. We can see all of the things Elijah did in 1 Kings 17 and 18. But James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Here's what that means for us. Is that Elijah, given all of the amazing things that he did, Elijah struggled with anger. And he struggled with pride. And he struggled with fear. We saw that in the verse we read earlier. He struggled in every single way that you and I struggle. And how do we know that? Well, he had a nature like ours. He was affected by sin and the curse and relationships and disappointments and unmet expectations. He was affected by all of those things just like we are. But what did he do? He prayed fervently that, I, that, that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah, he prayed, and something amazing happened. There was a drought for three years, and he prayed again, and it, and it rained. What's the implication? Why, why does James bring up Elijah? Well, because he's writing to Jewish Christians, and Elijah would have been someone they would have been familiar with. They know the stories. And so James is saying, if Elijah and all of the amazing things he did he had a nature like ours. He was just like us. But he prayed and something amazing happened. Therefore, pray. Pray. So, why spend the time this morning going through such a difficult passage like James? It's not because I've figured it out. It's definitely not because I figured it out and I want you to sort of catch up to where I am and be on my level. Because here's the, the truth. Uh, I stand before you as a convicted man by this text. And really, I've, I've been preaching to myself, and you're just, you're just there along for the ride. So, so why James 5? Why, why this passage? My desire for you as your pastor, for all of you, for Canyon Bible Church, would be, would be that, that you are all a people marked by prayer. And not necessarily praying many words to God, although that's not wrong, and, and not necessarily praying out of obligation or praying because you know you should, but you don't really want to. My, my desire for you with that, my desire for you is that you and I, we would be people marked by praying in faith. That's why we come to James 5. I want us to be people who who pray prayers of faith that sees God for who He is, a God who is good and does good all the time, even if we can't understand or see that that's true. I want us to be people who pray prayers of faith that don't misunderstand God to be a genie or a Santa Claus or a slot machine, but rests in God's goodness and rests in God's sovereign plan. My, my desire is that we would be people marked by praying prayers of faith. So I want to end this morning very quickly by offering just a few practical applications, a, a few ways that, that we can grow in our prayer life. These are taken from D.A. Carson's book, Praying with Paul. It's a phenomenal book. I commend that to you, Praying with Paul. 
Just four very quick applications. Number one, make a plan to pray. He says, much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. We don't drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. I've heard it said that those who, plan, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. I know it might not sound very religious or very spiritual, but make a plan to pray. Number two, limit distractions by vocalizing prayers or writing them down. Listen, you can audibly speak to God. That's okay. That's actually a good thing. But if that's not the way you'd like to do things, go ahead and write your prayers. But the point is that you and I tend to be very distracted. And and, and, and audibly speaking to God or writing down our prayers helps focus our prayers to Him. Number three, develop prayer relationships with other believers. Listen, there are times when you need to be encouraged to pray. But there are also times when you need to encourage someone else to pray, to keep them accountable, to encourage them. You need to be in relationships and you need to, if you don't have them, develop those relationships focused on prayer so that there can be mutual encouragement and edification there. And here's, here's the last point. Pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. I'm going to end this morning uh, quickly by reading this quote from Carson's book. He says this, pray long enough and honestly enough to get past the feelings of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. We are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. But if we pray until we pray, eventually we'll come to delight in God's presence, to rest in His love, and listen, to cherish His will in all areas of life. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, it is not easy to pray in faith. Lord, it is not easy to pray and trust at all times that you are good and that you are in control when we are suffering, when we know others who are suffering and afflicted. It is very, very difficult to pray these prayers. But Father, would you help us? Help us see you for who you are that is good and loving and patient and caring and who, do th- who does things for our good. I pray that we would continue to go to you whether, whether we're interested